0: Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 230, The Art of Mechanics Presented by Jim McClure. Now I get that weird, awkward point where I'm like, is everyone here thinking of board games or RPGs? Because we're going to talk about RPGs. Applicable to board games. Very applicable. How mechanics influence play. Just talk about this for an hour. Sure. It's in print now. You go to thirdactpublishing.com and you can buy that sucker. Okay, uh, if, if you go, because it, it used to be thirdact.pub. We had site issues and a whole bunch of things and all that's fixed. As of about six weeks ago, the new site was up and going. Let's say if you go to, to thirdactpublishing.com, or is it thirdactpub.com? I should know what the new thing is. It's on the card. Yep. Uh, you will see it there and you can buy it. ThirdActPub.com. that sounds good. We were going to talk about reflections tonight, as a matter of fact. Oh, yes. Yes. My God, there's people with notebooks. It is 10 o'clock on the last day of the convention. These are expectations I am not prepared to handle. I think you go for it. Steal it. Well, if someone's looking for a pencil, I'm pointing them straight at you. Like, you're the thief, clearly. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> I feel like some people walk through for the shortcut and then suddenly feel obligated when they make eye contact with the panelist. It's like, hey, you're going to sit down and join the panel, aren't you? Yeah, there we go. See, like, if I keep looking at Alex long enough, she's going to want to stop and stay. It's going to feel weird when she leaves. Yeah, see? All you really do is, <laughs> like, the next one comes in, just, see I was telling a story earlier about, yeah, some of the wonderful powers you can do with mechanics. I, I've, I've developed a little a uh, one-player RPG that is is—it's an unpublished thing. My Patreon backers got it, um, and it's fascinating. It's about a little tiny creature that shows up at your door that is told to you in a narrative, uh, and then is like, hey, I'm your little guardian. I'm going to protect you from danger. And then it makes you do things for you, and through the mechanics makes you feel weirdly obligated to do things for something that doesn't exist. Like, after I've got you bought in about on, like, day seven, like, every morning when you wake up, you read a new piece of what's going on, and it talks about how it wrote you a little tiny poem, and it gives you a poem, and then it instructs you to throw away one of your pencils because it's been chewed up. And every one of my playtesters went, I actually took a real pencil and threw it in the trash can like the game told me to. (laughs) It's fascinating. Fascinating. It it speaks to a particular... The, the natural superstitious part of the human mind, the desire to have that sort of interaction. Like I know a guy who's a long, long time atheist who says, I'm a long, long time atheist and every time something falls over in my apartment I'm like, goes. <laughs> right, sure, absolutely. <laughs> I love that half of the audience has a drink in their hand. This this makes me happy. Ah, <laughs> there we are. Thank you. Got it? Yep. Thank, you very much. Thank you, sir. So the requirement is that every one of you needs to buy a game, go to thirdactpub.com, be like this gentleman in the front row, and support my drinking habit. Actually, I rarely drink, but it's Metatopia. <laughs> Uh, just because Metatopia does back up events right on, we're now at start time. I'm going to give it two more minutes. I'll ask you all to close the doors, and then we'll get started at that point in time. Uh, just some basic housekeeping stuff uh, for those that are currently in the room. Um, this is being recorded, so, God, that's so interruptive. All right, I'm going to talk into the mic and try and... Try and uh... Try and do this and if I get bored with it then I'll just shout at you all like I normally do. Um, But, uh, just a couple basic housekeeping things. This is Metatopia, which is kind of split between RPGs, LARPs, and board games. Um, Just by a quick raise of hands, and it's okay if you raise your hand on both of these or neither of these, Um, but who is here primarily to learn and design about role-playing games? And who here is primarily for board games? Okay. Um, We are mostly role players in the audience. Um, Know that this panel is going to mostly focus on role playing games and role playing game mechanics. However, the lessons that are going to be taught in this should be pretty universal and apply anywhere. What we're really learning to do is to uh, essentially how mechanics influence people and influence the way they play. The examples that we're going to be using are going to be coming from role playing games Um, for various reasons. Board games engage in one specific kind of fun, generally speaking, called the challenge type of fun. Did you all know there's eight types of fun? That's a panel for a different day. Uh, Yes, there's precisely eight of them. Um, But, uh, and board games have a specific focus. RPGs sort of have a wider focus in that regard and makes it easier to sort of talk about in these type things. Uh, But, for the, the board gamers in the audience, if you want to grab me after the panel and talk more specifically about that, I'm happy to do that as well. Uh, also, just as a point, uh, I'm going to sort of talk uh, up here about a couple specific games and, and kind of go through everything, uh, and then we're going to open up to the last 20 or maybe 30 minutes to get us out of here a little bit early, um, open up to questions. Typically, I have a lot of questions from this panel, so the one thing I would encourage you all to do is just save your questions for the end. There's going to be ample time for us to have discussion about those when we hit the end. It is now 10.02 on Saturday evening in Metatopia. For those who have drinks, raise them up, enjoy yourselves, and we are going to learn about the art of mechanics. Forgot I had a straw. That's dangerous. I was told that this drink doesn't match the kilt. Now, in my defense, I feel like the combination of this drink and the kilt matched the personality, so I think I'm still, still in, the, in the right realm here. Okay, for those of you who are unaware of who I am, my name is Jim McClure, I'm the owner of Third Act Publishing. We are a small press RPG publishing organization uh, that have done such games as Terrible RPG, Reflections, Satanic Panic, Dominum Magica, Axon Punk, uh, and others that I'm forgetting. Reach of Titan is, is the one that is coming. Uh, additionally on this, I'm also a lead designer for Roll20. For those that aren't completely aware or know what Roll20 is, they're getting in the RPG design business, and they hired me about a year ago to, uh, as their lead designer designer to work on their games. I am very, very, very interested in this fascinating world of mechanics and what mechanics do to influence these meat sacks that sit inside of our heads because they do really interesting things. So we are here to talk about that and and the art of what mechanics do to influence play. Um, because I am one that comes very much from the the concept of mechanics aren't just something that exists that can be ignored. They do influence what we do and how people interact with our games and what type of experiences they have. They are vitally, vitally important. Um, For those who sat through, I'm going to say the longer version of this, which was earlier today, we spent two hours and built an RPG from the ground up. I had some people that were here with me from that where we literally went, okay, here's the process of how you apply mechanics to make a game. Uh, This is going to be much more focus on specific mechanics and using examples especially as most of you all come from the uh, RPG world uh, we're gonna be using mechanics that you understand um, so let's start out as any good mechanical discussion would be with alignment from D&D right we don't want any arguments so we're gonna start with the most controversial thing there's ever been Woohoo! so um, as our first example of, of how mechanics influence play Alignment in D&D is is a fascinating little thing to me, Um, because if we start thinking about what what alignment in D&D actually does, and I I don't mean the mechanics that D&D has tacked onto it, Um, but I mean conceptually what alignment in D&D does is it tells you exactly your character's place in the universe and what it's supposed to be. It also tells you that it should never change. Because to change alignment in D&D is a penalty based on the supporting mechanics. Depending on class for who's relevant that is. So this, this alignment system and what Jim McClure's issue with it is, is the fact is it tells our characters to be static. It tells you you are lawful good. You are to be lawful good. If you do something non-lawful good, the GM might change it. Because you messed up. That, I think, causes static characters. It's designed to call static characters. I don't think intentionally so. I think intentionally it's designed to give you your little place within the universe and make it feel good for why you killed the other intelligent creatures and let you sleep at night. But practically, what it's done is it has told you, this is your place, stay in your place. As a person that studies story structure, I don't like that. How boring of a story is it to start in one place and end in the same place? Unless it's a very, very sad story, but that's a different topic. Change in character is interesting. Change is dynamic. Progression is fascinating. Why aren't we encouraging people to change alignment? To me, that would be a better story structure. I have a proposal for you all to sort how we, we start seeing how mechanics influence play. What if I were to take D&D and I were to make a mechanic where I go, you start out as one alignment. Once you change that alignment, you get a one time per play session boost based on the level that you made the change at to a damage roll. Suddenly you want to change alignment, don't you? but it's problematic because is it a fun story to just go like hey i'm lawful good and then an hour into it i killed a guy i'm evil now give me my bonus please so we don't want that because that's not interesting what we want is people to change over time and changing back would be boring we don't want them to gain that so why don't we go hey here's what i'm going to give you when you change your alignment let's say it's at level four you gain that plus four bonus for the rest of the game. One time per combat session, plus four bonus to an attack or damage draw. You can change it whatever level you want. You can change it level one, you're gonna be locked in at a plus one bonus for the rest of the game. Change it level seven, you're gonna have a plus seven bonus for the rest of the game. It's balanced because the plus one bonus is gonna have a longer opportunity to do that. From there, if you ever revert back to your original, you lose that bonus. What has this mechanic now done? We took an alignment mechanic that told players, you need to be the same thing or you're going to be punished. And we gave it one tweak. Tweak worked a little better than when we were talking fourth edition, but still applies well to fifth edition. We made one tweak and told people, your objective is to start at one thing and arrive at another. And what those are don't matter, but we want to see that change in your character. Do we think that would result in a different type of play experience? And it's one tweak to one mechanic that will provide an entirely different player experience. This is what we're talking about when we talk about the art of mechanics and how mechanics influence play. Because they do influence play very, very strongly. Um, we're going to open up another example. Um, some of you all may have, especially in this convention, uh, may have played Dungeon World, It's powered by the Apocalypse game. Um, happen to think it's a really good game. Uh for many, many years people think I hated Dungeon World because three years ago it was the greatest game and solved all of your problems and I was the guy going like, no, it's it's good. Um but apparently that was hate. Uh but no, I Dungeon World is a phenomenal game. And it has one utterly brilliant mechanic that people do talk about, but not necessarily always in the right context for it, which is Dungeon World, for those who don't know Powered by the Apocalypse, uh, essentially the, the core resolution system is you roll 2d6, if you get a 10+, plus, it means you succeed, a 7 through 9 means you succeed with some sort of consequence, and in Dungeon World specifically, a 6 and below means you fail, but you gain an experience point. And that's the way you gain experience points, through failure. Now, that's the concept people talk about a lot. Gaining experience through failure is something we can all recognize. I'm pretty sure everyone in this room is a game designer and just got through two days of Metatopia. If you haven't learned through failure, myself very much included over the last two days, you're not doing Metatopia right. Everyone can understand that. That's a good concept. But mechanically, this actually did something far, far better, far more interesting than just learning through failure what it did, is it made every single die roll a positive experience for the players. You either succeeded, you succeeded but, or you improved. That is a wildly different experience than Dungeons & Dragons. In Dungeons & Dragons, I roll a d20 and I succeeded or I failed. Now, I got something no matter what occurred. No matter what result came up on the die, I either narratively got what I want, or I mechanically on my character sheet got something. We just hit a game where every single die roll makes me happy as a player. It's fascinating. What does that mechanic encourage to do though? Because there's another level to this. I saw it over there. Roll dice, take actions. Every action you take as a player benefits you. So the game is telling you, take actions all the damn time. Keep rolling those dice. Keep doing things. And that's intentional in the game. Because there is no bad result when you pick up those die. Only things that can benefit you. Therefore, it's making you do stuff mechanics influencing play that little thing of giving that point of experience and only giving experience points that way did far 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 more than just learn through experience it changed the entire dynamic of what was going on rolling dice was no longer a risk rolling dice was only a reward fascinating little game for that uh, the gambling industry would say that's a terrible, terrible design, which is a whole long other conversation. You need points of pain for the players, which actually I agree with, but it was trying to accomplish a specific thing. I am tired of people sitting back and doing nothing. I want my players to take actions, and it did it masterfully. It is brilliant, brilliant, that design. I'm so in love with Dungeon World. Um... So to pivot from there, and if you can't tell, this is kind of our format, we're going we're gonna to talk about mechanics in a bunch of different ways, and then as I said, we're going to open it up to, to discussion so we can talk about whatever we want. Um, for those that know me, or maybe listen to me on podcasts, and I talk a lot, I am the world's biggest fan of Legend of the Five Rings. Some of you all may have known this. It's the greatest game man has ever made. Funny story. Tabletop's the highest form of art known to mankind, and it is the greatest game that humanity has ever produced. I love L5R. It's fantastic. I will specifically say I am referring to 4th edition L5R. Fantasy Flight just released their 5th edition. I have not opened the box yet, so I don't have a comment on that. And what I'm about to talk to is all in reference to 4th edition L5R. The most brilliant mechanic, and and just to to Tarantino this a little bit, I'm about to tell you what's amazing and then how it's so fundamentally flawed the game is terrible. Yeah, yeah. This is the one time for those that know me that Jim is going to talk terrible bad things about L5R because it's a horribly flawed to the point of catastrophically broken system. But the brilliant part of the system, one of the things I think is the most brilliant is dueling. The act of dueling. And for those who don't know Legend of Five Rings, I should say this is a samurai based sort of in a, a completely fictional version of feudal Japan. Um, and one of the things that happens is, is you duel, okay? If, 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 if we have a problem, uh, and we're gonna have an issue and we need to resolve it what ends up happening is is we have a duel And they did a couple really fun things with it one I like uh, the person who's challenged get to decide the time and location and the time can be up to one year from now Longer than that would be rude because that would be stalling of course um, And I love that little mechanic too because it, it allows you to set up things in the future We don't have to resolve this now. We can set it up at the fall court And then we can build to that and put more and more events on top of it. So it it, it gives us some control over time, which is fascinating. The other thing is dueling happens to first blood in L5R. So dueling to first blood is is kind of fascinating because now I can engage with my rival and we can go all out and neither one of us are going to die. We can have a definitive winner, a definitive loser, and both of us are showing up to breakfast the next morning. How many of you perhaps in your mind have thought like, man, how do I have these encounters with the big bad and not have the players just immediately murder hobo them? Well does your game provide mechanics that allow that to happen? Dueling in L5R is one of those mechanics. To support this mechanic, one of the things that it does is it's whoever wins the duel is legally considered right on the matter. It's above any other evidence, beyond anything. You are right. And if you were to ever try and go against that, you would be doing a breach of honor, which is a mechanic in the game. So suddenly, even if you know he's lying and you're villain and he just told all of these lies about you in court and you called him out and you challenged him and he won his duel. You have to sit there and endure that. And if you speak against it, you get a mechanical hit against you. And it works both ways. Again, fascinating narrative device. Uh, If you haven't noticed the theme, this also opens up a very, very interesting sublayer to it. PvP. You know that thing we're all terrified of in tabletop? Never, ever, ever let the players fight each other because what's gonna happen? You have an answer. You can let full PvP happen and both players show up to breakfast the next morning and go on the next adventure. They can resolve their issues, they can fight it out and go on. We have given a tool to allow successful PvP happen in a role-playing game through L5R. It's brilliant. It's fantastic. I love it so much. It's so good. You all should go out and read the 2,800 pages of lore that have been printed for L5R. Go now, run. It's fine. But... It's broken, and it's broken so badly because everything I just said about how the dueling works and what keeps it together is really this social implication of you have to accept the turns of the duel, and if you don't accept the turns of the duel, then you have a mechanical penalty to you. However, the system took that mechanical penalty and made it so weak that it doesn't matter. Honor in fourth edition L5R, while it's nice to have high honor and it gives you a little boost, it's not that relevant. And if honor is not mechanically relevant, do any of the things tying to it really become that relevant? No. And that's where you can have a misplaced mechanic or a missed balanced mechanic, not in a DPS exchange balanced way, but in a balancing the systems of your game, and if it's not set up correctly, it can allow the whole house of cards to fall down. And for those that have played L5R long enough, that's exactly what happens. Because you're required to be this honor-bound samurai and the big mechanical penalty, which is great. Have a mechanical penalty. You have to play a samurai. You have to be honorable, unless you're from the scorpion clan, but we're not gonna get down that rabbit hole. You know, you have to be an upstanding citizen and abide by these incredibly strict rules. And the main conflict of the game is how do I deal with a situation when my personal honor conflicts with my honor to duty? That is the core of this game. My lord tells me to something to do something that I personally think is wrong. How do I deal with that situation? But mechanically, that completely falls apart if it doesn't have a mechanic that equally supports its weight in the game. And then the people that are playing it are only playing it because they're that into and doing it, which I am very much one of. But that's an example of of how to look at mechanics and how they can break down and fail even when they're trying to do the right thing. For you all that are game designers in this room, one of the things that you really need to consider is how important is this theme to my game needs to exactly equal how strong the mechanic is in the game. If I am playing a game that is about Duty-bound samurai, and people need to play that. The mechanic that makes people be duty-bound samurai needs to be the most powerful thing in the game because that's the most important concept. In Dungeons & Dragons, the most important concept is to go in a dungeon and kill a dragon. And if you look at the game, that's what the overwhelming majority of the mechanics do. It's wonderful. It fits great. DD is a fantastically designed system. L5R 4th edition is a horribly broken system, and it's the best game mankind has ever made. Those are the inconsistencies Jim gets to say. I need a drink after. Sorry, L5R. Um, <laughs> whew, I tell it's late in a convention, Susan. So there's some other really interesting, fascinating mechanics that I like within the world. Um, many people in the room might know know of John Harper, um, of course, recent, very much fame. Uh, he's been a prolific designer for a number of years. Um, a guy who did Blades in the Dark is, of course, sort of the thing that a lot of people know these this day and age, but he's designed a lot of games and a lot of really fascinating games. This is another example we want to talk about how, how games can help tell, tell some narrative stories. Um, he has a game called The Mustang. It's a free game. It's like two pages long. Um, it's really interesting. Um, the concept of the game is essentially it, it, it's sort of like a Western-themed thing. Um, almost, I guess, Deadlands is. There's some spiritual aspects to it. Uh, the devil is a stallion that's running out in the desert, essentially, and and plaguing this one village and. People have gotten tired of it and go, okay, it's time to deal with the devil, uh, as you do in the West. Um, So you have sort of your main character as the one who's gotten together three other people from town. They're at a campfire. They sort of tell their stories to each other about who they are and what the devil has done to them. Pardon me. That's the drinks. And then... They will ultimately go and encounter the devil, and each person will have their own fight with the devil, and then the main person will have a fight with the devil and see if they can kill it. And that's the game. It's a short two-page RPG. It's designed for a one-shot, plays in a couple hours. Um, One of the best short stories I've ever read, but mechanically it's problematic as a game. Okay. And we're going to talk about the, the, the issue that I have and then, again, how you can do a tweak to interest, introduce very interesting narrative concepts with small mechanics. The only mechanic of this game, uh, and, and this is reading verbatim, or I should say reading verbatim from the rules, but this is exactly what the rules say. I'm not skipping out anything on this, which is when each of the three people have a, an encounter with the devil, they flip a coin. Um, heads or tails and then they use that to interpret what happens. Then when there is the final fight with the main person who's kind of like a GM figure it's a little bit chair GM but the main person is not named uh, and is kind of kind of GM. They'll flip three coins and based on the heads or tails they'll narrate what happens. There's no requirement if it's all heads or all tails that someone lived or several died. It's just narrated. Which is, which is fine. It's Okay. Um, but I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna propose a change to Mr. John Harper, and I've talked to him. He knows I do this at panels, and has given it his blessing for it. Although he's told me he won't change his game, and that's fine. Um, but the the proposal is, if we want a little bit more narrative story to this, let's let, let's change this mechanic some. Let's go when the players engage in their one on one with the devil. They flip a coin, okay, and when they flip that coin. If they get a tails, they die, but they injure the devil. If heads, they escape, but they don't injure the devil. And then when we get to the final, we need a total of three injuries to the devil to kill him. And he'll get his final three flips. And if no one else damages him, he needs three heads to kill the devil. And if not, he dies and the devil lives. Okay? So we start to see, okay, we have a little bit of mechanics here, but... Mechanics are there to inspire choice. So let's add another choice. Let's say that when our pioneer, one of our three from town, engages with the devil and they flip their coin. If they get a heads, which means they don't damage the devil and they live, the narrator, the voice, who is a fourth character, can choose to make them re-flip if they want. This does several very interesting things because to reflip from heads gives a 50 50 chance of them dying, but helps the narrator succeed in the end. What the game has immediately become is that campfire scene where everyone is sharing stories. We're not just sharing stories anymore, we're trying to convince the GM not to kill us in the next act. We are trying to tell a story good enough that they will want us to live at risk of their own character. We now have given reason to be interested and invested in that side of it. We've empowered the player with choices. Those are the aspects that we really want to do and we really want to look at. Mechanics are there to give players choice, and based on the choices that we provide them makes interesting encounters. Fascinating little thing. Last game I'm going to talk about here tonight, and then we're going to open it up because, again, I want to call this nice and early because everyone wants to go to the bar and get drunk on their last wonderful evening here, um, is there's a so much talk and discussion about how to how to get people hooked in an interesting way onto a story, uh, how to get them through a story. Powered by the Apocalypse does some interesting things to sort of start out a game. Um, but everything we do in that regard is really GM advice. We don't, we're not great at telling stories in the role-playing game industry. We're really not. And by not great, I mean our best advice a lot of times is get out of the way and let the GM do it. So I had inspiration one day. Okay. And my inspiration was I watched the movie Up. Does anyone remember Up Pixar movie? You cry in the first five minutes of it? <laughs> Super good. I highly encourage anyone who has not seen that to go watch Up. It's really good. Watch just the first five minutes of it. Because what they do is they take characters that you do not know to have you crying about them in five minutes. It's brilliant. It is the most brilliant piece of storytelling I've ever seen outside of Gundam Wing, the greatest story ever told. (laughs) Tall geese on my phone cover, for those who know. Um, It's. It's fantastic, and what I realized from that when I watched that is I go, storytelling is about hitting a certain number of beats. They hit all of the beats of a three-act structure in five minutes, and that's what made us care. We don't need 20 play sessions to have an epic feeling in a game. Pixar has done it in five minutes. That was fascinating to me. So uh, the first game that I published is a game called Reflections. Someone has just purchased it. It's available at thirdactpub.com, right? Cheap plug. Um, but I want to talk about what, what I did with the mechanics of this game, because I decided to, to go a very different direction than most R- RPGs, where I'm not going to allow the GM to mess up my story. Is that terrible to say? That's what the game's designed around. I go, I'm taking the Pixar model. I want you to get through the three-act structure in an hour. And it's exactly what the game does. It prescribes five scenes that you are going to play in order. The time we were friends, the time we had an issue, the time it came to blood, the time we could have been friends or we could have resolved the issue, the time we went to the duel. You have to play those five scenes in that order. You're not allowed to mess up the three-act structure. You have to do it. it was an interesting choice, because nothing else I'd ever seen in the RPG world was that prescribed. So. It gets weird because you can't just tell people, okay, me and you are, we have to play friends in the first game. That's, mm, people are gonna only listen to that so much. We want to antagonize it. We know we're gonna kill each other. Like, let's just get to the sword fight, right? So what I did was the mechanics of the game then make you role play the correct way in each scene. The time we were friends, I have a secret objective and you have a secret objective that we pick. And that objective is to get the other person to do something via role play. And all of those objectives are exactly what the scene is supposed to be. The time we were friends, get them to promise to do something for you in the future. Get them to give you a cherished item. Get them to make you a promise. These are things that you do with a friend. The, the time you failed me, in that scene, is get the other person to storm out of an important event. Get the other person to draw blood from someone besides you. We're antagonizing each other now. And the fascinating thing is we are humans, are so susceptible. I, let's, modern Americans, let's go with that. Are so susceptible to the 3 act structure because we're bombarded with it constantly. Almost every movie that you've seen, most TV shows, most novels, all follow this structure. It is an ingrained structure that you may or may not be aware of. And the reason being is because it's incredibly effective and it's incredibly powerful. So I took a game where people didn't have an option but to do it. And almost every time, it provides an emotional response. Why? Because Pixar proved they could do it in five minutes. I'm not as good as Pixar. I think I can do it in an hour, though. And it's fascinating. We don't have to let our games just... Be a toolbox. That's a great thing to do, there's almost nothing wrong with that. But I do want to emphasize, you can make your mechanics make people have certain feelings and certain experiences, and it's about learning that, and it's about doing that. And that's what we see when these different things when we talk about an alignment change. What we see when we talk about Dungeon World is what we see in the, the, the successes and failures of L5R. These are the different things that we see. You can use these mechanics to very directly influence how your players will experience your game. So that is my abbreviated, because, man, I can go on in the mouth for this, uh, 30-minute coverage of that. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and open it up to questions. Uh, We'll start with questions, and then we can sort of maybe break down into conversation if we get into longer from there. So any questions, thoughts, what people have regarding the panel and things we talked about? Right back here, and before we get there, I'm going to tell you a fun little thing I was told. Okay, we'll Talk about how people act to things, and, and then we will absolutely get to your question. Uh, a, a very wise person once told me, he goes, Everyone's scared to ask something up front. If you stare at them, within 10 seconds, someone will raise their hand. It's an old trick that works every time. Right there in the back, sir. Yeah, um, and, and just to repeat the question, then this is a podcast here, uh, so I'm going to repeat it on the mic. Uh, essentially, which is the question is, should we, we help or, or do you think it helps our Hindus to directly label the mechanics and what they're doing? Um, to a degree, I think it depends. Um, the majority of the time, I'm going to lean towards just flat out tell people what you're trying to do. Um, my experience with it is it doesn't seem to affect things one little bit. I, again, in, in Reflections, as we talked about it, I tell people, this is the story you're going to play. You don't have a choice. If you're going to play Reflections, this is what you're doing. And hasn't affected anyone one little bit. However, there are certain aspects where I would say you should maybe just tell the GM what's going on because either it's something that the players don't need to know, don't understand, or may perhaps benefit from them not knowing. Um, The the game I'm actually here playtesting this weekend is called Reach of Titan, and it's about fighting giant, big, larger than life creatures. Not every one of my games is designed to make people cry. Sometimes we just have to have fun and stab big giants. in that game, there's a lot of information sort of about how the Titans work that's specifically kept from the players because that is more fun to find out through play, and that would be sort of my, my litmus test Litness test, litness test, whatever that word is. Sure, um, for 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 that is, would this be something that is more fun to discover during play, or is this something that's going to be the same regardless? Story structure is going to be the same regardless. Fun through play is something, man, we referenced the eight kinds of fun earlier, It's something that's going to trigger the discovery type of fun, which is to find something along the way that's a new piece of information that excites you, energizes you, gives you choice, gives you options, gives you something new to engage with basic structures of the game, basic things of what rules do, don't. Uh, Great example, 13th Age. Escalation Dice from 13th Age for anyone who's played that. It's a brilliant mechanic. One of the best mechanics come out in the last 10 years. Um, They are very direct and upfront with what the Escalation Dice does, which is, and for those who don't know, 13th Age, essentially there's a dice in the middle of the table. It's a D6. It starts at 1. The first round of combat, everyone gets plus 1 to their damage. Next round it goes to 2. Everyone gets plus 2. Good guys and bad guys. And what they do is they're very direct and honest with They go, we don't want combats to slog on forever. So what happens is damage just keeps ramping up. So that way there's no big slog at the end. People are just murdering each other outright uh, by the time you're in turn six and turn seven. And they're straight open and honest with that. Furthermore, the 13th Age book is a fascinating read because it was designed by two people who I'm convinced did not like each other, um, and had massive fundamental disagreements about what should go in that book, and they put both. They put both sides of it and literally go, here's the mechanic, here is the sidebar, I disagree with him, I think it should be this for so-and-so. And there's like 30 of those. I don't know that any two people have ever played the same game of Thirteenth Age, uh, but it is a very fascinating read as a designer. So that that would be my answer to you as far as uh, you know what what I would the only stuff I would recommend keeping from the players is stuff that'll be more fun to discover during play. Everything else, tell everyone up front exactly what's going on. They'll have a better experience with it. Other questions? Right here in the front. Oh. <laughs> I also learned when you tell people that it stops working because then they're like, oh, do you want it now. Question? I was just going to ask do you have any other favorite examples of mechanics that were super, super interesting to you? Oh, my God. Um, I mean, you got my top ones. That's why I use them, I suppose. But, um,. Let's see, uh, other other fascinating stuff um, that's not like super, super technical, um, okay, yeah, Uh, there's a a game going around, and because I keep referencing the eight kinds of fun, apparently we're talking about that these days, um, Dread, some of you might know this game, it's a horror RPG based around a Jenga tower, okay, um, let, let, let me tell you what I think is the most brilliant thing that I can't even handle, how good it is about that game. Uh, again, our core concept, for those who don't know, uh, Dread is a horror RPG where you have a Jenga tower as the core conceit. Uh, Essentially, when you take an action, you have to pull a number of blocks from the Jenga tower. If the Jenga tower falls while you're pulling blocks, you die or otherwise remove from the game. Okay, It's got a great build of, of, of building horror and suspense and all of that. Um. Here's the brilliant thing about it is it tied a sensory response to failure and specifically to catastrophic failure. And I couldn't think of anything else that does that. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, again, we've talked about there's eight kinds of fun. Sensation is one of the kinds of fun. Uh, if any of you all here have thought about like, oh, I don't really like playing online games because I like to roll dice, and you don't know why to answer that, it's because a sensation type of fun. You get to touch the dice, you get to hear them clack on the table. It's a sensory input. It's something that we enjoy experiencing as human beings. Um, with all of our RPGs, though, we pick up dice, we roll our dice, and then there's this break, Well, the GM tells us if we succeeded or we failed, or we do a little head math or something of that nature. There's no, there's like, okay, you didn't succeed. Dread, when you pull that wrong block, there's this moment of suspense, and then this ear-piercing, clattering wood on table. And you are just told, failure, 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 failure in the most catastrophic way, in the most catastrophic thing that can happen in the game. It's utterly brilliant. And I've talked to the designer about it, and he goes, Wow, that's cool, I didn't know that. Um, as a lot of designs are. Um, so that would be one of, one of my others that I think is, is fascinating at levels below sort of what the, the obvious things are. Uh, Dread, And for anyone who hasn't played it, played it, Dread is one of those games, when I first saw it came out, I'm like, all right, one of the 10 great designs has now been taken. Like, it's it's so brilliant and perfect in ways uh, that's just like, as a designer, I'm like, all right, scratch that off. I gotta look for one of the other ones now, because it's just wholesome and perfect. Another question? Can I hit you with two that I really love? Sure. So, uh, one is the one that I thought you were gonna say when you were talking about the apocalypse and the world dice mechanics, which is on the failure that triggers a GM move. Mm-hmm. GM gets to go do whatever they wanted anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and so giving this a mechanical reason to take the story in a, in a different direction or have something happen means that every dice roll, something happens.
1: Right, yep. And that's really good. Yep,
0: no, and it ties that's great that. into that. Mm. So there's a lot of these little things that uh, reward the characters for interacting with one another in a way that lets you demonstrate your, the character you want to play. Mm. Okay. Fascinating. Um, I've not played Flag, so I was, I'm was fr- familiar with that one. Yeah. Uh, I'll t- Any other questions? Otherwise I'm going to tell you one more and then we're going to break open. And t- go right ahead. Um, what, are, what are some feelings that you think aren't done very often or that, that uh, you want more mechanics to elicit from players? Mm. Oh, there's a feeling. There's, there's, the, 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 there's my white whale. And it's a white whale that no one else cares about. Okay, So this is going to get weirdly specific. Um, but the thing that I want that I've never been able to experience, it comes from, from World War II movies. Okay, And that's the submarine. That's underwater. It's attacked the transport. Could be good guys, could be bad guys, doesn't matter. And they're listening to their sonar. And the guy on the sonar goes, Captain! Death charges in the water. And there's this silence and the camera, and they're just hoping they don't blow up. It's that is so powerful to me that tension and then either nothing or catastrophe. And to find a way to do that in a way in an RPG mechanic that seems fair and interesting and builds that tension all the way through that's my white whale. That is the thing I want an RPG to do. And again, that RPG is not going to sell 20 copies. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But you will have a sale from Jim McClure. I assure you of that. That's why I play every submarine game I ever see. I'm like, are you going to be the one... Um, and smartly those designers focus on other things that will actually be important to selling a product. Um, but, but that's one of the things. Uh, the other is uh, a mechanic. I mean, me and you sat down and talked about this earlier. You sort of already heard this. This is design space that I'm fascinated by, which is actually giving, I mentioned earlier, mechanics are about choice and about giving players choice and giving more agency in that choice. Um, we, we, we come we're from the RPG world, we come from a traditional d background and in d d there's choice on the individual roles you take, but not really. You roll a d20 and add a modifier versus a target number. You didn't have any choice in that other than to build your character and determine that modifier. So if you succeed or fail, you can kind of feel that it's your responsibility because you were like, oh, okay, I could have built my character entirely different and had a plus nine instead of a plus two in that skill. But you don't really have much choice. GM called you to make a survival check, you made a survival check you've done what you can do the space that i'm fascinated by is putting agency at the point of the roll, And I don't understand why we don't do this more. Um, if, if you look at a lot of my designs, I, you will see this because I'm fascinated by this mechanic. Uh, to tell you uh, as an example, again, I, I mentioned Reach a Titan, the, the Titan killing game that I'm working on. The mechanic of that game is when you have a, a pool of six d6; those are your action dice. When you want to take an action, you choose to roll any number of those dice you want for that action. And if you beat the target number, you succeed. You can take a number of actions equal to however many dice you have available to take actions. So I could take one action in a turn and roll all six d6s on it. I could take four actions in a turn and roll two d6s, two d6, one d6, one d6. And what happens when then is if I choose that first action, and I roll two d6 and I fail, who is the failure? It's on me. I could have rolled three. I chose to roll two to work the action economy. All of the agency is on me as a player. The numbers never feel bad because I'm always the one that messed up. Side note, I'm never mad at the designer for his unbalanced game. I'm mad at myself for not choosing to roll more dice. And I honestly think more games should do that. I, I reference, again, I, I designed a game for Roll20. Uh, I don't like promoting it because it's only available to pro subscribers. And I mean, I guess Roll20's great. Like You all should go there and they're fantastic. Um, but Burn Bright, uh, the core system of that is... It's a little bonkers, but I think it's cool. Um, which is the core mechanic of the game is everyone has the same 18 skills. Okay, Six social, six mental, six physical skills. Every player has the same 18. They're rated from a D4 to a D12. D12 is the best, D4 is the worst. And If you're in combat, when you take an action, you choose which skill you're going to use to do this action. And you can shoot your guns with the stealth skill if you want, as long as you narratively justify it. Go wild with it. But you are going to roll two dice of whatever skill that you're using. As long as you don't get doubles, you succeed. Because you're a competent person. You can succeed at what you're trying to do as long as the situation of the universe doesn't conspire against you. Then you can take another action on this turn. But that one, you're going to roll three dice. And then an action after that, you're going to roll four dice of whatever your skill is. If you fail, not only does the action fail, there's further penalties that come along with it. So now we have a pressure luck game, which is what our, our scrappy little space adventure is all about. How much can you try and get done in a turn? How far do you push yourself? How much do you risk within your turns before you fail? Again, all the agency is at the players because at the worst possible dice, your 2d4 on your first action, you still have a 75% chance of success. That's the worst probability you can have for a first action. A fourth action? Those numbers have gone down significantly. Do you go for that fourth action? Go for that fifth action. You've got those D12s. I wonder what that percentage is. Oh, I mapped that thing out the old way. It was great. So, to directly answer your question, that's I am fascinated by those mechanics that put the agency at the moment of the role as opposed to putting the agency at character creation. I think that's more dynamic. Uh, any last questions? Right here. I've seen a lot of systems that give mechanical bonuses for good role or for entice, and they're intended to get to take players who don't necessarily want to do roleplay and entice them to. Do role play. But it always ends up being kind of a feel bad that those players don't want to do roleplay, and it's the other players who are better at it getting bonuses they're not. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a good example of this or something like that that ended up working out? <sighs> I'm trying to think if I have a good example because you have established, in my opinion, directly diagnosed the problem. Okay? And, and the problem is you're – and a lot of people realize is – you're rewarding the person first. You're giving advantage. And in this situation, it's weird to say that, but what it means is the people who are good at role-playing are always going to role-play. And the people who are quiet are a little bit nervous about that. So now, the loud, bombastic individual who everyone laughs about is getting bonus points. And, and I would like to speak up and do a little thing. Okay, thanks. And you got nothing. You have now only made the problem worse with that mechanic. I think that's a bad mechanic. And I don't have an example to show you. I honestly wish I did. I would love to see it. If one of y'all's designs have it, please bring it to me. That that has a way to solve that specific problem. But I've got a theory on how to solve that problem. So the eight kinds of fun, right? Let's, I'm going to have to do a panel on this next year. One of the reasons, and you all have probably played enough to, to realize is you probably either have some people in your group or play with people who sort of show up at games, they're quiet during the table, and you're like, hey, did you have fun? They're like, oh, yeah, it was great. It's phenomenal. God, don't those players bug you to no end. Well, well, there's a secret about it, okay? And that is they are actually having fun. And there's one of the types of fun that we engage with is called fellowship. And that is solely gaining enjoyment from being around other people and enjoying your time with them. And there are a lot of people that enjoy tabletop for that reason. We all get to work together and do a big social thing. And as long as we did it, I don't care if the dice were bad. Who cares? We all got together and had fun. And I think a lot of times our quiet role players who are actively wanting to be at the table. I mean, it's a different story if it was someone who drugged there and didn't want to be there. But the people who are actively engaging, a lot of times they're very much heavily engaged with that fellowship type of fun. So instead of trying to make them enjoy the expression type of fun, which a lot of times is what this big bombastic role play is, let's stop trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. Let's give them mechanics where they can help everyone else because that's what they're into. And that will give them the engagement they want. The people that don't want to role play are not going to role play. And the more you make them feel bad about it, the less they're going to want to be there. So it's, 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 that's kind of my answer to it is I, I think the solution is a kind of an indirect one, and that is you need to identify what that person is at the table and what they're getting out of the experience, because it's not most of the time, not that they're uncomfortable or something of that nature, it's just they're not the giant bombastic person, but there is something else in RPGs they are connecting with, and your game should hopefully provide that for them. If it does, they'll come to it and they'll love it. Any other questions? It is 12 minutes shy, so we're going to go ahead. Oh, I'm so sorry. Back here. What are the eight types of fun? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, let me see if I can actually call him out with doing it. Um, For those who are taking notes so seriously, where it comes from, um, this isn't something that Jim McClure came up with. It's a document called the MDA, A Formal Approach to Game Design. Uh, It is five pages long. It was written by a, a group of MIT people in the early 2000s when they were finally trying to codify, like, All of these people are doing game design, but there's no actual solid theory, and some super smart people got together and made what's called the MDA, Formal Approach to Game Design. Uh, It outlines the eight kinds of fun in that, as well as a couple other useful tools. I consider it a five-page game designer's bible. Read that thing, understand what it means. I think it is the fundamental building block to understanding games. So, if I see if I've stalled long enough to then answer your question, and see if I can rattle these things off. So, it is narrative, expression, fantasy, sensation, discovery, uh, challenge, fellowship. I knew I'd miss one in there. There's one other. Let me see if I can find it. I said narrative and expression, didn't I? Read them back to me. Did you write them down? Sensation, fellowship, discovery, narrative, uh, exp, challenge. challenge, fantasy. Uh, the All right, I, I always miss one. Normally, it's sensation. I'm I'm going to give you an answer. Completeness. <laughs> Samurai. Samurai. That's what it should be. Oh, here we go. Okay. Let's see which one I missed. Uh, Sensation, fantasy, narrative, challenge, fellowship, discovery, expression. Oh, the one I missed. It's weirdly named Submission. Okay, And that is our enjoyment of whips and chains and the people that enjoy it. No, clearly not. Um, Submission is, and, and kind of the reason I often forget about Submission is, I actually think Submission is a form of play that is wholly incompatible with tabletop RPGs. Um, semi-incompatible with board games, but board games can get closer to it. Uh, what submission type of fun is, the easiest way I explain it, I go, it's Candy Crush. It is doing something repetitive at a low cognitive load to allow yourself to decompress and pass time. For anyone that got on the Candy Crush train, sitting there and going like, just doing it and all of a sudden two hours went by. Uh, for those who play Minecraft, mining out minerals in it. That's all submission type of fun. It's doing something at low cognitive load. I think by default engagement with tabletop is too high to ever really hit submission. I will say this. We were talking about things that we don't see. If someone can find submission type of fun in tabletop, you have a gold mind. And there's... Uh, that could do it. Partially, that can be boredom. That can actually somewhat be discovery. But it could also be submission type of fun. I have a sure. For, mmm. Um, for Aha! Now we, we now we're in a wholly different conversation. Of is the eight kinds of fun complete? Um, ultimately, you know what what I'm going to say that is 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 its expression. Um, and the reason being is because I am looking to get a certain feeling it's why I want that that feeling of of helplessness and I've done everything i can and I just have to wait and the answer's not coming and it's quiet and boom we're good I crave that feeling. That 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 it, it, it's something deep and primal. Maybe from watching too many World War II movies as a kid. I don't know. Um, but that's how I would explain it. I would also say Jim McClure does not believe the eight times the fun are complete. Um, and. I honestly think if Jim McClure were, were to add to it, there'd be a couple in there. I legitimately think humor is its own kind of fun. The the designers of this, I've actually had a chance. Uh, Mark LeBlanc is one of the ones, and not the guy from Friends. Um, entirely different. Mark LeBlanc is, is, is one of the authors for it. And I had a chance to talk to him, almost had him on a podcast, but so we couldn't get the schedules to quite work uh, to talk to him because I'm the world's biggest fan of, of his writing. Um, and uh, he believes that humor is, is tied into fellowship. Um, I kind of believe it's its own thing games like Cards Against Humanity kind of prove that humor can be a mechanic in and of itself and a way to engage that I don't think um, I I think it's its own thing but uh, anticipation is one that I would put Uh, some of you all know this feeling of like I can't wait to game on Friday night I am so I'm so ready for Metatopia I think that's its own unique type of fun and I think I would put it in that regards Uh, but that that's Jim putting words that aren't on, on the paper It's an interesting take. But mm-hmm. you yep. I I very strongly believe anticipation is one. Anticipation is a super powerful one. Um the uh, j- Just to get, give a, a brief note, when we, considering we opened up this can of worms and talking about it, and then I'll, I'll let us all get out of here and we can all sit at the bar and talk any more that you want. Um, but there are certain ways that people engage with the eight types of fun that can be confusing to people. Um, mid-maxers. Everyone is familiar with this term and know what a mid-maxer is. Uh, the obvious way to go with that is, it's oh, the challenge type of fun. They want to win. They want to succeed in doing a thing. And a lot of mid-maxers are, however, and I have some of these in my home group. There's quite a few min-maxers that are actually doing it from expression. They want to get into a game and they want to feel like they are the best at something. It's an empowerment fantasy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, we're almost done, but thank you. Uh, So you can have a min-maxer that actually isn't necessarily interested in breaking or winning the game in any way. They're interested in wanting to be, I'm the best in the world at this because I enjoy playing that. And that's mid-matching from an expression standpoint. Likewise, there are people that enjoy parsing through all of the rules and learning all these little things from a discovery standpoint. How can I find something that they weren't expecting or that I didn't know or that the internet hasn't figured out yet? That's then going through the rules from a discovery type of fun. So, again, this is a panel unto itself, um, or bar talk after this. Uh, but there, there's wonderful, interesting ways, and there's always more than one way to look at something. So when you talked about Cards Against Humanity, there's definitely multiple ways to look at that. But this is our time. Thank you all so much for attending. Hopefully uh, we, we had a wonderful time this late. Thank you. Like I said, I will be walking 20 feet in that direction, and anyone who wants to, to continue or have a different conversation, I'll be there. Alright. I did it. I talked for an hour. Yeah. Oh, you talked for an hour Listen, I, it's like every podcast I start every panel, ten minutes before it, I'm convinced I'm gonna get five minutes in and not be able to say anything. Jim McClure never in his life has been able to hold talk for five minutes. Yet the brain wants to trick itself and be like, you're gonna be a failure. No, did not flip me the middle finger five minutes in and walk out in unison. Like, like my brain thought was going to happen. So. That's no, that'd be, that'd be great. I think if we do it once, then we get it out of the way.